All right, everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are bringing you a special guest on Monday, July 17th, 2023. Sam, I nailed the date for once right up front, so kudos to me. And our special guest is none other than Matt Forrester. Matt is the CIO of BNY Mellon Advisors. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so last time I met with you, Matt, you were not the CIO of BNY Mellon Advisors. You worked for an entity called Lockwood. So we were breaking some bread together on the East Coast. And so maybe you can walk through not just, uh, you know, the, the transition here of what's going on with Lockwood and BNY, but for, take us through the career of Matt Forrester and why you're so special. <laughs> Thank you. Sure, Jeff. <laughs> uh, so, um uh, at June, at Insight, this year's Insight meeting, which is our big Persian conference, uh, we announced that uh, we will no longer be Lockwood Advisors. We will approach the markets as BNY Mellon Advisors. So I think it's part of uh, a host of efforts around uh, improving our, um, our, our positioning within the universe and especially towards uh, advisors, which is who we work with, generally speaking. So uh, Pershing X has announced Wove, which is their new platform. Um, and as part of that, uh, Lockwood Advisors will has become BNY Mellon Advisors. And uh, we're excited about the opportunity. I think it's going to help us in the marketplace uh, go to uh, where the firm's moniker when we go out and talk to advisors. Yeah. So what does that mean for those who knew you under the Lockwood brand? Uh, what does it bring to the table now with this new uh, merger with BMY? The unit is still are still uh, is still independent. Um, however, there's work around investment management, investment management tools. We've created a new global macro uh, markets advisory council, uh, which I'll be a part of and uh, in the leadership of. So we will. Um, you know, be able to draw upon some of the resources of one of the largest asset managers in the country. Uh, we had, you know, here for before this, we'd been a little siloed, and I think uh, now we're, you know, bringing some of those efforts together. The, the whole effort is an attempt to go to the market and speak as one company at BNY Mellon, which yeah. we call one BNY Mellon is like an initiative across the firm. And I think that is still ongoing, but uh, we're excited about the opportunity it's gonna bring us to be able to talk to our advisors and uh, draw upon a lot of the resources of a really large asset manager um, that we have been a little detached from in the past. Yeah, okay, so with that, let's talk about kind of day to day. What's a day in your life look like um, you know, you can talk personal, but primarily professionally is what we're thinking, what a typical day looks like, what, what you do uh, and what you help provide to ultimately to your clients. So uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of an avid reader. So, you know, my day starts with uh, markets preview to see what's going on overnight. And uh, just like a lot of folks, uh, you know, I'm reading quite a bit about what I think is uh, what I think is happening. I mean, I'm, I'm the chief investment officer, so I oversee a team of about six portfolio managers that, uh, and, and there's a couple others that also are, are licensed to their investment personnel. They may not be directly managing, you know, our portfolios, but, you know, Lockwood is a, a very large, the former Lockwood is a very large place. BNY Mail Advisors has, uh, you know, we have about 550 strategies that we're keeping an eye on at any point in time. Now, this could be, 
uh, ETFs, mutual funds, model strategies. They could be deployed individually or in a, a, a vehicle like a, a UMA. So we've got plenty to keep us busy. Uh, you know, I do do the occasional uh, media appearance like we are today, or, um, uh, you know, we run an investment committee and a whole host of other committees all the time that are kind of keeping an eye on that uh, large volume of uh, now a combination of internal and external investment strategies. Okay, so when you're looking at that 550 is a lot, right? I think we all would say that, you know, we, you know, when we talk about credit analysts, you know, like having 40 or 50 names is a lot to know very well. So how do you guys keep a handle on that? I mean, everybody has a different process too. Is it, is it just kind of uh, infrequent reviews? Is it, you have quantitative screens mixed with qualitative? Talk me through that process of how you stay on top of all this. Sure. So this is a joint effort. Well, it has been uh, for a long time. So uh, a number of years ago, the analysts that were part of Lockwood Advisors were moved into manager research at, at BNY Mellon, and that's still our partner today. So we have a you know, a team of about uh, 15 analysts that are with BNY Mellon um, Investment Strategy uh, Group, which is, you know, doing manager due diligence. So they're, they're apart from us now, but we, you know, collaborate them frequently. And that's in addition to the 30 folks that we have at BNY Mellon Advisors. So, uh, you know, we've got a pretty sizable team to, you know, manage that uh, number of strategies. We're moving things around quite a bit. Uh, and we're also, we also, you know, our business with when we're providing, say, the menu of investment options to um, uh, a, a brokerage firm or an RIA that custodies and clears through Pershing, uh, and they may be bringing a lot of strategies to the table that they want us to review. So a lot of times, you know, we have a set list of things that are maybe our favorites, but the clients are also bringing some of their uh, most desired strategy to, strategies to the table for us to look, look at or be part of their program. If a firm in our world is already their own sponsor of their own managed accounts platform, you know, they can pretty much give, uh, provide whatever kind of strategies they want. Um, and uh, we're rarely going to you know, balk at that unless there's something really wrong with those strategies or the people involved with it, which happens from time to time. But, uh, you know, we so we've got that wide universe because we've got a pretty sizable network, you know, of broker dealers and RIAs that are using us uh, for their investment platform. Right. So when you think about that, too, like what is your goal in terms of the offerings? Right. Like you have these 550, you know, uh, what are you looking to do when you're giving that choice to your individual um, RIAs in the in your network? Yeah, so we're we consider it curated. So we're not, you know, the whole universe. Not everything is going to be on the platform. Uh, you know, we're going to go through our due diligence effort, or we're going to do that in combination with our clients to get to the right mix of solutions. Uh, so again, the, the word is like a curated list of uh, managers that we're actually going to put on the program. Some of the, some strategies might just not be a fit. They might not have fit for uh, legal or regulatory reasons, compliance reasons. Um, you know, we have a platform that is comprised of ETS, mutual funds, and separately managed accounts, as well as model strategies. A client may be able to get some access to that through other parts of purging. So, okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're part of a much bigger enterprise and providing, um, again, those curated lists of strategies that we think are the ones advisors should focus on. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get through all, we're getting through all that. Let's move on to what Sam wants to know about, 
What is kind of your current take on the macroeconomic environment and, and where markets are today? I mean, this is the most forecasted recession ever uh, yeah. in the history of economists, or at least uh, from, from most of our careers. Uh, obviously, has not uh, materialized to date. Um, in fact, some of the data is starting to improve a little bit. But what do you think about this from a macroeconomic standpoint? Where are we in the cycle? And you know, what does that lead to in thinking about markets today? Uh, sure. So, uh, you just talk about about the cycle. I think we have been uh, in a period where we're between the long and variable lags of monetary policy and the long and variable lags of fiscal policy. So, you know, we've had this very expansive fiscal policy, which I think is still providing tailwinds to the consumer today. Look at the consumer sentiment numbers. I think they're completely worthless in terms of forecasting, but they do indicate a general mood among uh, among consumers that is relatively optimistic. They've also been they do tend to be correlated to the S and P five hundred with a lag a little bit, right? right? So exactly. It's not yeah, so they, you know, given the stock market performance, but that's yeah. that. So I don't think they're useful at all for for forecasts. But I do think it gives a general sense. And look, the employment numbers are still the big uh, the big factor, as long as people are generally employed, uh, and that is crystal clear that we're still in a relatively strong labor market. I think maybe the economists are a little surprised that we haven't started to see the cracks in the armor on the labor side at all. Uh, so as long as people are employed, you know, that's going to mean that we're still in a relatively decent economy. But, you know, I think the challenge is going to be if it starts to deteriorate from here. Of course, we've been uh, also, you know, receiving a really big dose of disinflation, and uh, I think we're going to have a harder sledding from here for a couple of reasons. One is that it's just harder to squeeze that last, you know, juice out of that uh, uh, lemon as you get down to the bottom. It's going to be harder for the Fed to get from the three handle to the two handle, or getting close to its target. It's just going to be harder. Uh, I think we've lost sight of things like we haven't had to think about it in such a long time that the the sacrifice ratio this notion that somewhere down the line we're going to have to pay a price for having this amount of disinflation in the economy so i i still think that that it's going to get difficult more difficult from here on the inflation story that doesn't mean that the overall trend in disinflation is going to go away uh, the other factor is, and I think a lot of yeah, people- We also have the impact of base effects, right? Yeah, the base effect. That's what I was going right? to yeah. say. That's the next thing that I think is- Sorry, is, my bad. That, I'll, yeah, I'll no, up we, let you talk Yeah, about. I mean, I, it's, I think those are interesting. It's just going to be harder for this because the big uh, increases in inflation, you know, they've, they've dropped off already. So now it's going to be a lot harder as we go through the back half of the year. In fact, I think the, the inflation report that we just got may be the most important one in terms of that disinflationary story. From here on, it gets one heck of a lot harder. Um, so it'll be interesting the markets react to that, you know, and uh, we'll we'll just have to see what happens, but um, we're a little concerned about what inflation might do for this back half of the year in terms of, we're just unlikely to see those types of, of gains on the inflation story. So those are big pieces of, uh, I think, the macro. And of course the other right. one is what's going on in the stock market in terms of you know uh, AI and ML and this kind of frenzy into these sets of stocks. Yeah, so let, let's pick up on that because I saw one of your most recent reports under the BNY moniker uh, was about one of these big trends being the AI and the MLP. Um, talk talk us through that um, and you know kind of how you guys are thinking about that and is it that you know 
everybody's concentrated that on a couple of stocks and it's just you know kind of futile uh, at this stage or is it something where people should be positioning for the trend irrespective of kind of valuation levels yeah i think the biggest question to me is is whether or not these tools by i find that i mean ai and ml and this whole collection of, of tools is it a generalized productivity improvement for the overall economy i think those are going to be the the big questions as we move forward but we have a couple of market instances of those. So, uh, you know, if you look in the 1920s, a big part of the stock market run up in the 20s was the electrific electrification and the creation of a national electricity grid. But very few of those companies uh, made it through, you know, a longer time period. So they were all run up during the, the 1920s. And then, uh, you know, on the crash, they all uh, were, most of them went out of business. We saw that in the same with the internet. None of the internet, very few of the internet players in the 1999-2000 market run-up in tech were the ones that were actually the ultimate beneficiaries of these new productivity-enhancing technologies. I suspect we're there again, that the companies that are now leading the charge are not the same ones that are going to, uh, going to emerge. Time will tell on that, but so I, I would just be a little cautious about some of the multiples that we see around these companies right now um, it's certainly exciting technology. I don't think anyone saw this coming, that there was going to be this surge of, uh, of interest and a handful of companies was going to drive the entire stock market. Nobody, nobody saw that at the beginning of the year or maybe since last fall, since the chat GPT uh, discussion has kind of become part of this public discussion. Um, so so for, for some technology to become part of the generalized economic landscape, more people have to use it. So I, I was struck by some of the survey data when I wrote the report that, you know, only about 14% of Americans say they've tried a chat GPT like uh, system or, you know, as a, a tool based on a large language model. So yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because, um, you know, I was, uh, I met a buddy of mine, like about a month ago, we were going to go to a baseball game and he's a electrical engineer. And I'm like, Oh, you know, this whole chat GPT thing. And he's like, what? And I'm like, have you not heard of it? It's like all the buzz in finance communities, right? And I'm like, you know, how have you not even heard of it? And he's like, I don't even know what it is. And so uh, anyway, I think it's kind of funny that, again, sometimes the microcosm of the world we live in, we assume there's this, you know, broad uh, participation, but it's just broad participation, our very narrow cohort, right? Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned this. I'll, I'll mention a little story. So I've been on uh, L airplanes from time to time like you are and I get a little bored and I need to do a word puzzle or something just to keep yeah. me occupied while I'm waiting for an aircraft to arrive or depart or whatever and uh, so I noticed that in this little game that I have there's another button I can hit that says AI and so it, it it's this stupid little game is giving me this portal to a chat GPT like environment and I thought okay maybe maybe this is going to get you know more traction uh, but I think your other story just shows that the general story is that a lot of Americans have not used these uh, kinds of toolkits yet so I think making two things one making the claim that this is a generalized productivity gainer I'm just a little skeptical of that argument. Uh, you know, we'll see as time moves on. Or, or is it going to be that much different from, say, typing in a question into your Google box already uh, or your, your, your browser already? How much different is going to be? 
And that's what, what I, I, I asked originally on this too. It, it's like another correlation matrix. I think it's just higher dimensions and it's learning how to piece it back together in what we call English today, right? Yeah. But, you know, I remember back in the day, like Google, like when you were doing this, like in the mid 2000s, let's call it, like in order to get a decent result, you had to use the quotation marks. You're looking for these precise phrases. Now you can butcher the spelling, you can butcher the order, and yep. you get a pretty solid result back out of your search engine, right? And so, um, again, what every anybody who's a fan of ChatGPT, I was like, isn't it just Google? And I mean, they'll castigate me for making that that statement, of course. Uh, but I do find it interesting that you draw some of those parallels. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot to think about there. Of course, the the costs of this over time, if this is does become a more generalized technology, you know, will it supplant workers? Is it going to continuation of a trend that we've really seen for a long time, where the returns to capital outstrip the returns to labor? That's you know really generalized macro problem. And what are what are going to be the offsets to that over time? I think those are those are really important questions. And and if I would argue that if these tools are so great, why haven't we seen some of the productivity gains uh, baked in the market already? Because we're not we're not seeing that. We're not getting great productivity numbers. They're just not not very good. Total factor productivity is not rising very quickly, if at all. In fact, maybe declining recently. Well, maybe maybe it's because people are being unproductive with this technology playing around with it and not yeah, being yeah. productive like you measure. What are, what are they doing with that? I certainly <laughs> ask that a lot about today's society. And, uh, you know, we just look around at, at who is actually working on a given uh, given day. But that's another question for, for another time, probably. Um, but meanwhile, in terms of market, we're still in this recovery mode from COVID and the impacts on leisure, hospitality, retail, transportation. They're still trying to come back to life. Uh, you know, obviously the urban uh, occupancy and in, in commercial real estate is still really low, or half of what it was at the peaks. Um, same thing with public transportation, and you know, there's a lot of costs that I don't think we've yet borne. We've been able to muddle through. Uh, but I think there's going to be bigger adjustments, uh, you know, over time as, as we still adjust to that. So, you know, we're still getting the tailwind from from this recovery, I think, and the tailwind from the stimulus. But we've yet to run into what the, the Fed has done in 525 you know, basis points worth of hikes. And, uh, you know, according to my terminal here, it's uh, got a 93 percent chance that we're going to have another one here uh, next week. So. Um, I still think the costs of that are ahead of us, even there if they're a little bit delayed. So, uh, um, you know, we still have a base case that probably on the order of 80 percent that we're going to see some kind of recessionary uh, development here in the next year. Yeah. Uh, before we actually jump into the recession part, uh, I did want to pick your mind a little bit more on the AI side, if you don't mind, uh, just given your, your most recent commentary. Yeah, so we talked about investing in AI and it seeming to, to generate this new wave of FOMO, this fresh wave of FOMO, at least in U.S. equities or corners of it. Beyond just investing in AI, did you come across or have any thoughts about AI in investing? The idea of machine learning, AI being used for investment decisions themselves and what your thoughts are around that? Yeah, I, how long before these tools have a meaningful impact on asset allocation or model selection, or even manager selections, but I think that's a really good question. Uh, you know, is going to this going to lead to a, a new kind of arms race around these types of tools around large asset managers? 
Uh, and I, I think that's a, a really good question. But again, I think we're going to need to see the benefits of that. And to some extent, I think the, this effort is going to revolve very heavily around the type of data that you have access to. What are you seeing to, to train these data sets? If we're all training these same systems on the exact same amount of publicly available data that we can all get from public sources and investments world, well, what, how valuable is that going to be? Either the only edge you would have would be how, how much more effective your tools would be. Uh, or the kind of modeling that you're doing. You've just got a better team of, of analysts, if you will, looking at the data. But it's kind of like the whole robo-advisor concept, right? That like, exactly. I get the gist of it, but if everybody does the same thing, how are we really allocating capital, right? Right. Is exactly. that kind of the gist of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, are you, are you just, you know, doing the same things that other people are doing and looking at the same data? So I think unique data sources are going to be really important. Um, and to, as you mentioned, Robo, think about the fact that, you know, some of those efforts have been gathering a lot of information about people and their behavioral decisions around their investments. So that will, you know, be an improvement uh, to, their, to them. They're getting something, they're learning something by watching how their investors, whether those are robo advisors or, or, or advisors of themselves, and how they're interfacing with the investment universe. They might be learning some really interesting stuff there. So, uh, you know, we'll see. I think I think we're just in the early stages of this. So, um, but I suspect that these tools will become, you know, part of the toolkit for just about everybody at some point in time. Yeah, yeah it does I seem like it's. Uh, sorry, I was going to say just on top of that, just it's early enough, but it seems like uh, Gary Gensler at the SEC is already starting to get his hooks, or at least his mind, yeah. into how he could. Uh, how he can get the folks of the SEC involved in here as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. As well. Yeah, and, and kind of like the browser example, I guess I would raise the question of whether or not this is all that different from what we've been going through for the long time. I mean, we just lost Harry Markowitz, right? Just, just uh, you know, in memoriam to, to him and just a tremendous uh, achievement in, in, in figuring out that we had to consider risk and return at the same time and creating a quant model to, to do that. But if you think about it, we've had 50 years of advancements upon his basic theory and lots of other types of quantitative uh, technical tools. That's what we've been doing for a long time. Is this, is this a whole lot different from all the other things that we've already been trying to you know, assemble to manage our portfolios and do asset allocation and manager selection and do our due diligence on managers? Uh, I don't know that it's, uh, or, or issuers in your case, you know, is it, is it that different? Um, so we've added, you know, bootstrapping and resampling and statistical techniques to, you know, a general framework, but it seems like a lot of these efforts are just going to augment things that we already have in place. Yeah, so I want to take it back to where we were going before, um, you know, Sam put us on the AI train, and that is kind of on, on this recession outlook. And really, um, you know, a lot of people uh, give various reasons for thinking about it. What's in your toolkit for thinking about that? Obviously, the long and variable lags are something you brought up. You know, I was of the belief that it would be very hard to have a recession this year. I got very nervous around the banking scare we had, right? I, I'm not sure we're out of the woods there yet. Uh, but not to leave the witness here, as I've been accused of doing on the podcast. Uh, what are the things that, that kind of point to and signal this 80% of a probability of a recession in the next 12 months? Well, you just mentioned, I think, a really big factor, which is the credit side. Uh, you know how, or how you're looking at that. 
uh, we really wrote, we wrote about this in last quarter's commentary that you know just a large portion of consumer and industrial loans and real estate loans uh, they're coming out of this smaller bank um, environment and uh, I think we're likely to have continued pressure there on uh, small banks and how their their ability to lend into this economy so I, I've been sort of surprised that maybe the optimism around credit and maybe high yield particularly I just a little surprised at where they're pricing today uh, I think maybe to me the reason why they've done better than expected is that if you look at if you look at the option justice spread it's one thing but if you look at the option adjusted duration we also have lower duration in a lot of some of those higher yield interests that might explain some of it even if we're in an inverted yield curve but still I just think they're they're priced for perfection and uh, that to me is a, is a bit of a concern as we move forward clearly though if we're going to have this job full recession that may be the that may be the, the the real case for you know how we skirt through this uh, I'd also say that you know, corporate margins are extremely high. Just the, the NIPA profit margins are, are awfully high. Um, I'm a little surprised that, that we're going to get here over the next couple of weeks as we go through the second quarter earnings period. We're going to hear what happened, but we're we're likely to come through that with an eight or nine or 10 percent decline in your your profits. So it's hard for me to see how the stock market is celebrating that because it's definitely going in the wrong direction. Uh, and so I, I think there's a little bit more cyclical pressure than people think. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's possible that maybe the traditional channel for how higher interest rates translate into the economy um, is not as effective as it used to be. And that's possible. Um, but you're certainly seeing some of the damage start to get done in housing. You're starting to see it in, you know, other credit sensitive uh, sectors of the economy. And I think they're going to lead us in another direction. And the global picture isn't helping. This morning we got news on, on China. The numbers are quite a bit lower than uh, the analysts expect, you know, but it's clearly the, the global growth engine that has supplied a lot of the, the world's growth over the last 20 years, uh, you know, has definitely, you know, slowing down to a great degree, at least here in the near term. So I think that just paints a cloudier picture for, for what might go forward. Uh, all those factors, I think, are are part of the picture. Yeah, I mean, uh, on the corporate side too, you know, I think part of it too is like the rapid rise with which we saw uh, in rates, right? And let's say we get a hike next week. I think we all believe it's going to happen, irrespective of whether it should or shouldn't. It is going to happen, and you know, uh, gives fodder for more rate cuts in the future, as some say. But as you look through that. You know, what you see is that it has had less of an impact on the credit side, I believe, because the debt was so termed out, right? You had all these companies refinancing in 2021, and they did it with some of the longest maturities we've seen, right? Or at least the weighted average maturity went out, both in high yield as well as the investment grade corporate bond markets. And so, um, you know, I think that's part of the reason that the, the, the lag is a bit longer this time. Um, but eventually, time erodes that thesis, right? And so what I've been, you know, kind of talking to folks about is like, well, if you want to see where there's problems, look at the ones that get re-racked all the time, right? It's floating rate debt. And when you look at the floating rate debt, I mean, you see out there across the spectrum that, you know, it is causing more pain. There's more delinquencies. There's higher default rates. And so I think to, to do this broad swath that, well, there's nothing wrong with credit because look at high yield. High yield leads to default cycle. I think potentially in this one, it's bank loans lead the default cycle because it's very problematic to be paying, you know, a 10, 11, 12 coupon because, you know, the Fed continues to press rates high. 
Yeah, we're just like the Fed. We fight the last war. So we're worried about consumer-led housing okay. like we were in the great financial crisis. Yeah. And we're worried about, you know, all these other places, which have hit us before. And we're likely to have, you know, new problems emerge in places we weren't expecting it. Uh, you know, the British pension issue might be, you know, right. kind of that kind of a thing where there's clearly a lot of pressure uh, on certain balance sheets in this economy or certain P&L statements. And I think we're going to find those as, you know, interest rates continue to rise on the short end. We're, we're just, we're going to find them. And so how markets react to that is going to be interesting, but uh, I suspect that the banking piece of it has not quite fully played out. Now, the tools that the Fed has are, are incredibly effective. I mean, what they're able to bring through and, uh, you know, to solve at least the balance sheet issue they're remarkable effective in that regard. And clearly that's had a major impact on what's happened so far. Yeah, you mentioned the UK. I find it interesting too. They're still struggling with inflation, right? They're still struggling yeah. with their rate hikes, right? Now you talk about all the floating rate mortgages they have there. Yeah, it looks like that's going to be problematic on their side. So they may get a dose of our last crisis, unfortunately, in the future as well. Yeah. Um, let's, say, let's take something else you talked about too, is that you know fighting the last war. What do you think is the next kind of uh, problematic behavior uh, out there? And like, what kind of pitfalls do you see there? Like, you know, just kind of open up what, what's uh, said differently, potentially, like what's what's a risk that people aren't talking about? Everybody's talking about commercial real estate. We're talking about small regional banks. What is something you see as a risk that maybe maybe it's not as a, a guaranteed uh, negative outcome, but it's a risk that people are underappreciating? Well, we mentioned the UK, so let's just talk a little bit about the disparities between the you know, forward PEs on European and emerging markets and the US. I mean, this has been going on for quite a while, but right now the UK is incredibly attractively priced from the print of other markets around the globe. This is true of most of Europe. Uh, meanwhile, the US is, you know, 21 times forward earnings that we know are declining. So I think valuations are, are a risk here. It's just, uh, you know, how much froth can, can we get? I think that's still going to be a concern. Uh, clearly, we just mentioned, you know, the, the commercial industrial, uh, commercial real estate loan issues, which I still think are tremendously challenging. Uh, you know, you're in California, you know, that seems like be the epicenter of some of this overvalued real estate. I still think there's quite a lot of risk that uh, could, could come to get us. So I, I'm just skeptical that, the next great bull market is going to launch from 21 times uh, forward earnings. Now we could get this earnings resurgence, but I, I don't know that we're seeing that yet. And I, I'm hard, I'm having trouble finding the pieces that's going to make that uh, look a lot more attractive. Um, and I don't think we're going to get a lot of help from the other pieces of the policy. Clearly monetary policy is uh, tightening uh, if, even from here. Fiscal policy is incredibly constrained now. We've just spent an incredible amount of money on trying to get us through the, the COVID period. And to me and to a lot of people, maybe way too much than we should have spent to, to get us out of that. And so uh, I don't think fiscal policy is going to come to the rescue here as well. So uh, just a little concern that we're in this kind of slow motion train wreck and we're going to watch, you know, pieces of the market uh, puzzle begin to erode a bit as we go through the certainly back half this year and maybe into the front half of, of next year as well. Are anything starting to, to look attractive though outside of this? Um, you know, we, we focus on the risk side a lot here as, you know, especially with me and Sherman on the fixed income side, but a lot of times we've been accused of you know, failing to focus on opportunities that might yeah, be you know, right, right off right. as well. So no, side right. of that same coin. 
I, I feel like that a lot. I, I find myself a little depressing when I listen to myself talk, but uh, we have, um, I can't wait till I can come on and say, yeah, everything is fantastic. Let's go, uh, let's go buy risk everywhere. But uh, to that end, like I just mentioned the, the overseas markets, I think um, emergent markets in particularly look particularly attractive to me. Uh, we've seen this dip in the dollar uh, this week. Now I know China's a big piece of that. And so maybe I'm really talking about ex-China emerging markets, but I think with a little bit of relief from a weaker dollar, and um, I think that market is maybe healthier than it's been in past cycles. I think you're getting really in interesting entry points to that market that maybe like we haven't seen in quite a long time and decades even. So to me, those are interesting places to go. Um, obviously the entire fixed income swath across the United States looks uh, with the possible exception of what we've talked about already, which is high yield and the lesser grade credits, but really quality credit and quality uh, and sovereigns look, look pretty interesting and particularly mortgages. If we're going to have a relatively jobful uh, downturn, then people will stay in their homes. Mortgages look pretty attractive. They seem to have already discounted, like sort of not fighting last war, they seem to have already discounted some of the challenges they might expect to see. And so, you know, we think mortgages might look uh, attractive here. So I know I'm, I'm speaking your uh, language there, but, uh, you know, it <laughs> looks, <laughs> looks pretty good. So uh, those are places where we would focus on. Look, if we do have if we begin to have that deteriorating cyclical pressure, you know, bonds are going to perform really well and particularly longer duration. So uh, having a little bit extra duration here, I don't think is a bad place at all. Nobody needs to top tick the yield in order to make a little bit of money in a little bit longer duration uh, instruments. Yeah. And so for those that are looking for some mortgage help, uh, we have some instruments out there that could probably help you uh, targeted or, or a little more broader based. But uh, to not make this a, a commercial for us, Matt, see, let's talk about your asset allocation today. How are you positioned and, you know, kind of what kind of and again, it's not one size fits all, but, you know, kind of how you think about it, what people should be doing over and underweight kind of roughly to their overall targets over the long term. Yes, yeah, so we um, we still have some of those alternatives in play. Uh, I've heard you know some of the fixed income allocations now. We picked up a little duration. Uh, we've focused a little bit on a couple other asset classes that uh, we, we don't have a lot of credit here at all. Uh, so very little uh, credit exposure. Uh, on the equity side, we've uh, we've been a little bit cautious there. It certainly hurt us this uh, last couple quarters or year to date. It was hard to see this coming. And these are markets that's a very different, very difficult for equity managers to outperform when it's seven to 10 names that are running away with the performance derby. So um, those are, are, are challenging. So we have, um, we still have a little bit of a, in certain places, a little bit of a hedge on equities where we can, not everywhere. Uh, remember we run 120 different model voice. We have pieces that are doing all kinds of different things. Uh, in some cases, we have those exposures still in place. Um, we had uh, last year, we, we've, we've backed off of this a little bit, but we have had, uh, there's an interesting piece of the fully construction puzzle that a lot of people don't think about, particularly US-based advisors, which is uh, currency. So last year, from January to mid-October, in fact, for the whole year, you got a thousand basis points in alpha if you just hedged your FX. So if you had EFI FX hedge versus EFI, it was a thousand basis points in your international exposure, which is an amazing number. So I think if we continue to get the kind of major currency volatility 
using that as a uh, as a as a place to as a source of alpha, I think, is an interesting thing that a lot of advisors aren't thinking about today. So, uh, we had a little bit of that on last year, and it really helped our our performance in the international equity side. Um, so, look, we know we know right if we do get you know kind of more generalized risk measures, you know, your correlations are going to go higher, closer to one than they have. I mean, this is like a feature of markets. And I think today, for a couple of the reasons, you have to have a little bit more of a, of a, of a uh, risk management piece of your portfolio. Uh, one of those might be just this concept of geopolitical alpha. I don't know how else people are thinking about portfolio. When I do the headlines, I find them a little alarming. And uh, you know, this just like you would in February of 22, very few advisors expected, and they had those; they didn't have those positions in their portfolio, um, anticipating that the Russians were to walk into Ukraine. And here we are, and the rhetoric around the globe is is really alarming. I just think you ought to back off a little bit about that risk, and uh, that means high 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 uh, quality duration in your portfolio, um, you know, maybe a little bit of hedges, pieces like uh, like gold or precious metals that might help cushion that blow if we continue to have this kind of um, escalating rhetoric, you know, around the globe. So are you worried about the next fiscal impulse in regard to the uh, recession? And so where I'm going with that is that, you know, we saw how powerful it was to throw lots of money. And granted, it was a pandemic. It was, you know, extraordinary by any of our measures in our lifetimes, right? But uh, do you have any concern about the fiscal response mechanism, either no response because we're going to election cycle potentially, or too much response because we realize how we can get out of this, get unmired from this recession behavior? So any thoughts on that? Well, uh, the biggest piece is simply the amount we're going to return on uh, student loan repayment. Now, you know, obviously the administration and Congress are fighting over this idea, but, you know, for a whole lot of um, 20-somethings, uh, maybe older, swath of the economy, they're going to have to start paying back those loans. That's It's something on the average student loan uh, borrower is going to have to pay back something like $400 a month. So that's just a little bit of an example of, I, I don't, the fiscal authorities are going to have no choice but to start to remove some of that excessive uh, spending. They're going to have to find ways to make this work. Uh, and, and the flip side of that, as you well know, is just the amount of issuance that's going to have to come from the federal government that the market is going to have to absorb. I mean, we're going to go reload that that kitty um, and uh, the treasury sector is you know, going to move in that direction to, to issue a heck of a lot of debt and the market's going to have to absorb that. So these liquidity pressures are, are are, are meaningful, I think, like how they get financed and exactly what uh, pieces of the financial market infrastructure funded, I think are, are really important. But clearly it's, it's going in the wrong direction. That's sort of what I mean where I say that I don't think fiscal policy is going to be a big tailwind for markets for quite a long time. We've just got a really big hole to dig out of. And so I think that's going to impact that. And, and someone is going to use that to try to <laughs> increase taxes, you know, more generally. Uh, you know, we'll see, of course, that's kind of a partisan political issue that's going to get kicked around. But e either way, I think it's hard to see a direction where we're going to get a lot of help from the fiscal side for a long time. So, uh, so again, just, just another piece of the concern is just the overall liquidity issues from that, uh, that topic. Well, definitely, Matt, you're not the, uh, the positive equity guy that says buy stocks all the time. You, you are a thinker about the macroeconomic economy. And so, 
with that, maybe I could ask um, you to share, like for our listeners out there, how can they get in touch with your research, what you guys put out there um, yourself, if they're looking for that as well? What's the best method out there so we can give you a cheap little commercial real quick? Well, sure. Well, we, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find us there. I tend to post my uh, publications uh, there. You can find us on the Pershing uh, website or the BNY Mellon website there. Uh, of course, we're a big part of the Pershing uh, infrastructure. So you custody and clear through Pershing, you know, please, please find us through, uh, through that um, venue as well. Yeah, you say about the bonds versus stock jockeys, I, I, I've always <laughs> found that that's an interesting, there's a very different perspective on the economy. Yeah, I came from a bond manager myself. So I, I tend to see the world more like the, the macro from the macro side and from the, uh, the fixed income lens. So clearly that's a base for everything that we do in the financial markets, including the equity markets. But I think a lot of stock jockeys forget that <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, that's also why our last lunch was over two hours because we just couldn't stop until my sales guy had to pull me away and said, no, <laughs> no more. We're going to put him on the Sherman show to continue his conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but as I said, it's a cheap uh, commercial. It's not free. And so <laughs> what you have to do is not only you got to pay your dues by doing this podcast, but before we let you go, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. All right, okay. Matt, it's time to pay the piper. My favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman to hopefully get a top of mind response from each one of you. And I'm going to start off with Sherman to give you an example with the prompt of default wave. It's like a tsunami, right? It just builds, it builds, it builds, and then it crushes you. So um, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> uh, over to you, Matt, with US consumer. Healthy for the moment, uh, but going to look more challenged for the rest of the year. That's not a one word answer, but yeah. Yeah, we've we've gone away from the one word answer. Sherman just refused. <laughs> he just refused. I said and tsunami, just... and I had to describe why tsunami. I didn't want people to think it's burying us now. So, um, <laughs> I guess you need a better one word answer if you have to explain it. It's not good enough, right? Yeah, he just ended up taunting me with his long, you know, long paragraph answers. So, let's go back to Sherman with earnings season. Well, if you extrapolate it thus far, it's going to be stellar. Uh, with all one day of reporting, we got some more going on today. But uh, thus far, uh, so far, so good. So uh, for the other 497 companies in the S&P 500, the gauntlet has been laid down. All right. Back to you, uh, Matt, with, let's see here. Debt service, U.S. corporates. Uh, I, I, I think this that sounds like default wave to me, but not quite not quite the same. I think we're going to obviously there's it's a quality question. It, it comes back to quality and how well those companies have managed. And I think Jeff made a great point about this, which is if companies refinance themselves for the last couple of years at you know some of the lowest interest rates we've ever seen in the history of the world, then uh, they and they've done that for longer term periods, then I think they're like those companies are likely to be uh, in good shape. So um, I think other companies that rely on financing from the 
commercial industrial loans sector, the commercial real estate sector from the regional banks and smaller banks, that could be a, a bigger concern. Don't forget small business in that too, because small yeah, business yeah, small, a lot of exists there, right? You know, yeah. which is yeah. we always talk about it being the lifeblood of our economy, but you know, it's a lot of stuff that's not being talked about right now, and the access to that is becoming yeah. significantly more challenging. Not to mention the cost. Yeah. Yep. All right, Sherman. No landing. No way, man. You run out of fuel at some point. You got to land. You know, unless you got those Top Gun planes, right? Where they come in and fuel. Sam, you remember that video game from the 80s where it's so hard to refuel? Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's no such thing as an LA. You got to come down sometime. Just hopefully it's soft, you know, and uh, hopefully you survive it. The, uh, the hand motions that you just put up almost reminds me of Top Gun, the first one. The inverted. Yeah. The inverted <laughs> and then uh, what's it called? <laughs> Geopolitical relations. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe I had those two things confused. Maybe I consider that refueling. But subsequent to that, they ran out of fuel. After the geopolitical relations, that was the whole scene, you know, getting quit. So, uh, oh, spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen that 35-year-old movie, <laughs> Yeah, still worth watching. All right. Uh, over to you, Matt, with S&P 7 dominance. Mm, uh, yeah, starting to look frothy and expensive. Uh, not... We're not nor nowhere near where we were in 2000. I want to make that crystal clear. We, you know, we saw valuations then that were unlike anything anybody could believe. But uh, we're starting to see some companies, I won't name names, where they're selling at you know, 40x times sales. Wow, those are numbers that are, are, are you know, there's a little froth that, that's here and I'm not quite sure those are justified at the moment. Well, what about two-year forward sales, right? We saw that during 2020, right? It's like, not, not don't look at the 12-month forward PE. Let's go to 24-month, right? There, there's always price, a way to wrestle with it. Price the eyeballs. And, you know, we, we have, we, we're getting there with some of these valuation indicators that are, uh, you know, starting to, they're starting to be meaningful in macro terms. You know, just, uh, you know, when you have companies that are, dwarfing GDP of uh, major other other nation, major nation states in the world, you, you just have to start to ask questions about whether or not those companies are going to end up being worth it. I still think the initial point that I mean, which is that we have two historical models for this, at least two and probably others, but, you know, the internet and the electrification grid and in, in both times where we saw these really frothy periods, the, those were not the companies that you ultimately wanted to invest in in order to ride this uh, generalized productivity gain. And so that's my big question about this at the moment. And and Professor Schiller would be uh, on here. He'd tell us the third one was the railroads as well, sure. right? Too, we did not have the dominance. So that was the one that preceded the electrification. And uh, shout out to Professor Schiller. I always give respect to your railroad metaphor. So yeah, yeah. Choo <laughs> choo. Yeah. All right, Sherman. Uh, Fed's balance sheet. Stop talking about frothy here. I mean, frothy, but trending downward. And so for all the reduction that we have seen, I mean, it's been it's been miraculous. They couldn't even make, you know, a quarter of the stint before um, they stepped in with their extraordinary lending programs, increased it temporarily and then got that off again. And so I think the, the Fed's done a pretty good job of letting the, the grass grow underneath their feet there. Um, you know, and what's been interesting is that the way they set up the plan of having 60 billion a month in treasuries and 30 up to 35 in mortgages, you know, they were going to actually roll that off, right? Like there wasn't going to be enough to hit those caps. And what we noticed, you know, last last month at the asset allocation meeting is that 
Now it's another six or seven months where they can hit the cap. So it looks like some of that reinvestment they've been doing is on the shore of the curve to be able to allow themselves to continue that, that process. So um, we'll see if you know rates decline at some point, they accelerate you know, the mortgage side of the equation versus treasuries because they, they seem to want to be out of that market, but they're not talking about it anymore. Um, now that housing prices are down a little bit, um, people get confused on agency MBS and its role in the in house prices. But that being said, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to see how well it's went and it hasn't been disruptive. And so perhaps it's, as Matt said, we've been awash with liquidity out there because of all the fiscal inputs, impulses out there. And so we'll have to see if, if it does become problematic. But, you know, as, as they say, when you you know, jump out of the 50th story building by the 20th floor, you're like, so far, so good. So let's see what happens. At some point, I think they'll have to recant, but um, they're not going to let a recession happen and continue to unwind the balance sheet is my essential tenant of belief. Yeah, I was actually surprised the other day. I, I saw that um, the SOMA portfolio, so part of the, the holdings in the and the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet there, that's come down, we see about a trillion over the last three, maybe four months since they started. Really? So, I mean, it, it's kind of come down in the background. Like you said, it's, it really hasn't been disruptive. And, you know, Powell's, and the, Powell's done a really good job as presser and just really not talking about it as well. So well, I think the trillion come down over the last year, right? Or are you talking about the moving from reverse repo or whatever? The sum of portfolio is the assets, right? So, yeah, sorry. Did I say uh, did I say this year? It was, uh, it was last year. It was the last year. Right? last year. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah that, that makes more sense. So got to fact check, you say. I mean, you, you're always to do it. Yeah, it's like watching paint dry, right? That's what the Fed wants you to, to, to tell. They want you to see this process that you're just drying in the background. Don't worry about it, you know, and that's. Yeah. Uh, but the last time he's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And it's like, there's a problem in the system. You're ignoring it, right? <laughs> right. So right now it seems to be so far so good. I'll say I had trepidation about the pace that they were going to try to do it at. And again, so far so good. Yeah. All right. So let's go over back to you, Matt, with Chinese economy. Um, so I think there's tremendous problem in the, uh, the, the uh, real estate side. China is clearly going through something like what Japan did than we did. And now they're going through the same sort of uh, unwinding of speculative, ex speculative excess in the uh, Chinese market. And the same time that they have really indebted local uh, governments that are usually the ones that come in to try to smooth this out. So obviously the Chinese financing system is a little bit opaque to Western investors maybe, but they've clearly got a big problem. And I think that's part of what's showing up in the in today's numbers and some of the pieces why China is, is underperforming growth expectations. All right, final round, Sherman, James Bullard. I can't keep up. Is he hawkish or dovish right now? I mean, he tends to be the super hawk, and then he got dovish for a little bit. Um, I really don't know where he's at these days, so I don't really pay attention to him. I don't pay attention to the Fed governors, as you know. I, I said you, you needed to, you know, roughly, you know, 18 months ago when we were looking at, you know, this process, and you were getting a concerted message out of everyone as they were setting up for the rate rises. But um, you know, now that we're here and there's discontent and there's there's this idea that, you know, we should raise 200 or we should cut 100, you know, I think what you do is you you follow the Fed chairman and, and that's what I've been doing. So um, I don't even know what Bullard's latest kind of thought is. What, what am I missing, Sam? His latest thought was that he stepped down from the uh, his position as the longest tenured 
Federal Reserve Bank president of the St. Louis Fed last week, and uh, he's over, or he's going to be going over to the University of Purdue's business school as their inaugural dean. If I oh, captured that, well, I, I think he's going to go into a hedge fund to get some insights and be able to get paid. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, going to academics, anyway. going to going to Purdue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah go so the good thing I think out of that is maybe we can get some real talk out of him. Although he's not yeah. really been shy in the past either, so we'll see what no. you know, some of the censorship off. Uh, what Those are the say. most interesting people to talk to are the folks just as they leave the Fed. That's what I want to hear. They yeah. really tell us what's really happening. So, so uh, Sherman, you may actually be tuning in to what he has to say at this point. I'll just get the kind of the un, unadulterated look at a view of what uh, how he's thinking. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, look, um, you know, I guess uh, we'll have to find some folks that we know in Indiana to make a visit and go see Purdue. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. Take us home here, Matt, with uh, debt forgiveness. Or loan forgiveness, however you want to take it. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm a little challenged with that particular uh, position. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to get political, but uh, I, I I find it hard to uh, embrace the notion that we're going to emburden the general taxpayer, uh, the, the general American taxpayer with uh, loan forgiveness. That's just my, my take on it. So uh, clearly, clearly it's still political hot potato, uh, but that's just my, my view on it. But it, you know, the point that I, I want to make about that is actually that regardless of where you stand on the issue, it's a major financial investment, massive. Um, how the administration is able to get around this notion that this has to go through Congress. Remember, money bills initiate you know, run in the House and somehow the administration can just try to wipe out uh, you know, a program that, if you look at a lot of estimates, the original program they designed was gonna be 800 billion to a trillion dollars uh, of, of loan forgiveness. It's just too much. Uh, to not put to the the general population uh, and i think there's a lot of people who are in the commercial trade indices or vocational trades who may not want to pay for somebody else's college uh, loan and I, I don't know that i blame them so uh, i think it's a this is a contract that somebody initiated on their own and now we're asking somebody else in the economy to pay for it uh, just for the political expediency of buying a few boats in the short run so I think that's a concern and um, you know, not, not, nobody else got those kinds of, of loan forgiveness, uh, you know, and, but this is clearly going to be a, a financial issue here in the back half of the year as these payments begin to kick in for folks that have been in forbearance for, I think, 39 months, something like that. And if they're in the COVID period, they've not had to pay anything and that's not going to change. Yeah, September 1, buckle up. Uh, Sherman Show listeners, student loan payments are due again. Interest starts to accrue September 1 on federal loans. So uh, make sure that uh, you are planning and budgeting accordingly. Um, you know, to, to our fellow double line employees, that's something we've been talking about in the desk. So make sure you've been, uh, you know, you're playing the game, hoping that Uncle Joe is going to hook you up. And uh, Uncle Joe got shot down by by Amp Supreme Court. So there you go. Uh, and never underestimate in any capacity, Matt, you know, rushing political expediency for buying votes, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so never underestimate the power of that. American so, way. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah. Debt, debt and buying votes. So anyway, uh, Matt, it's a pleasure as always. I enjoy talking to you. Hopefully our listeners got um, you know, so something uh, really useful out of this conversation. Uh, we kept it tight. Usually Matt and I spend at least a couple hours. So 
sometimes uh, we, you know, we, we do it at a dinner instead. So we make sure that we have enough time, uh, nothing to, to jam us up. But this has been Matt Forrester, the CIO from BNY Mellon Advisors. Uh, it's an affiliate of BNY Mellon Holdings and Pershing and Pershing X and all the other great stuff that you do. So Matt, thanks for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. And to our listeners out there, you can catch us on our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash double line capital. Uh, you can also catch us on anywhere where you get your podcast served to you, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google, uh, as well as Apple iTunes. So take care and stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. podcast was recorded on the date indicated in the description. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2003, DoubleLine Capital.